Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series for leaders who empower others to create supportive and inclusive workplaces where people can do their absolute best. Each week I will interview a leader who epitomizes the ability to empower others to lead and create amazing workplaces, environments and communities because of that skill. In these interviews I try as much as possible to let our guests do all the talking as they are the stars and not me. I trust you enjoy the lessons and wisdoms each guest shares, and if you're like me, listen to the interviews a number of times to capture some of the true gems of leadership we hear each week. In this next podcast interview of the Courage to Lead interview series, I interview one of my favourite guests so far, and I know I, I fall in love with every guest, but this guest is truly special, a truly beautiful human being. Imelda Davis, a councillor on the City of Sydney Council, who is deputy to Clover Moore, Lord Mayor of Sydney, in a myriad of important areas. In this interview, we laugh and we cry, and we are exposed to some of the best leadership wisdom on the program so far. We discuss Imelda's background as a proud Australian South Sea Islander and a survivor of trauma of the blackbirding trade that occurred in Australia's history that not many of us know anything about. We then discuss Imelda's leadership experiences and challenges she faces in her role. Imelda shares her heritage and reflects on the challenges of transforming from grassroots community advocacy for the Australian South Sea Islanders to council work. We also discuss Imelda's experience as an activist, her work in community engagement, her involvement in the film industry, her role as a single mum, and her advocacy for climate change and Indigenous voices. Throughout the interview, Imelda emphasises the importance of inclusion, kindness, and building strong relationships within communities. My favourite Imelda quote in this interview is, wherever I am in the world or working, I've always tried to provide a pathway for those who wouldn't necessarily have the opportunity, because I know someone did that for me, and that's my grounding in everything I do. Welcome to the Courage to Lead interview series. Our next and very, very special guest. I've been waiting for a while to um, speak to this beautiful lady, um, Councillor Amelda Davis. And uh, and your national name, I suppose your heritage name is Wax Wascam. Wascam. Wasakum. So that's that's a beautiful name. Yeah. So uh, welcome to the show. Um, I, I, your your bio was huge, so I'll, I'll do that in the in the show notes before we start. But <laughs> welcome to the show, Milda. Thank you. Thank you. It's um, indeed an honour uh, to meet you first and foremost, Alan. And um, one of the things I'd like to start with is is most important is is that we're on Gadigal country. I'd like to acknowledge the. Uh, Gadigal clan, one of the 29 clans of the Eora Nation. Gadigal is Sydney, and I'm very pri privileged to sit on um, the Team Clover City of Sydney Council. So um, I'm, uh, I guess, uh, confronted with the challenges of, you know, how do I fit into this space? So this is a good start in having this interview with you and, and sort of just sort of putting it all together because I come from a grassroots community advocacy space and it's very different to, I guess, 
you know, this whole structure that we have to fit into. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, no, I'm, it's, I'm really, it's a good day. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to it, Imelda. Um, and just um, we had a little bit of a chat before we started, but just for the listeners, um, uh, Imelda was recommended by Lord Mayor Clover Moore to come on to this show as, as, a, as a, a an outstanding leader for me to interview. Um, and everything, when you when you read Imelda's bio, um, she's pretty well deputy chair for everything that uh, Lord Mayor Clover Moore holds dear, uh, and you go in and 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 um, represent her when she's not available, which would be a lot. <laughs> um, so hats off to you. That's a huge pat on the back from someone like an international well-known leader like Clover Moore. So thank you. Um, yeah. So, so I don't mean to embarrass you with that, but that, that it sells, says volumes that, um, number one, she recommended you, and number two, your your status in t- the team, Clover governing team. So that's pretty good. Um, so let's get into the, the the couple of icebreaker questions. And then we're, the interview, as I said to you, is all about you and what formed you into the leader that you are today, because there's always a story. Um, so the first question is, what was your first ever true experience of leadership? And it can be as a five-year-old or it can be yesterday or anywhere in between. I'm in your head. Well, well you know what? I um, I come from a long family of activists. And as you know, I'm a descendant of Australia's blackbirding trade, which is a Pacific slave trade. So I'm born into adversity. And uh, I guess a lot of challenges where I grew up um, very humble, as many of us did as Australians, but at the same time, you know, against the wire in terms of uh, inclusion and recognition and equal opportunity. So I grew up being a bit of a a tomboy because of some of the challenges I faced um, in terms of racism. (laughs) So when I reflect on on my childhood, it's like, oh my God, was I really like that? Because I had to deal with um, coming from a, a, a regional area such as Chindra, which is up on the Tweed, um, and uh, very challenging in terms of identity, yeah, and what it looks like for our peoples, yeah, because we come from an Aboriginal, Torres Strait, and Australian South Sea Islander community. And there's complexities in that itself. So um, in sort of um, staking your claim and standing your ground and and I guess, you know, coming from activism where was it, you know, in an era where we're on the brink of, uh, you know, civil rights movement, because I was born in 61 and I, you know, right through until uh, 67, I was still at home in Chindra. And then I guess, you know, being righteous came from my grandfather who and my grandmother who sustained the family, but um, having to, I guess, say we are here as a people and and sort of witnessing that from the community around me. So we had the Aboriginal Torres Strait South Sea Islander communities and us kids were seen but not heard, but we witnessed so much in terms of leadership. So it's like it was like this natural birthright that we were born into being able to, I was a very quiet child, but I was also, um, I witnessed the assertiveness of of our women in particular, but Grandfather Moses was known for his, you know, his no mess savvy despite the challenges he faced because he was stolen as a 
child. That's my mother's father. Mm. And that story was always handed down in our family. So I sort of, he died when I was born, but I sort of knew of him. So it was like this, I think it was just like this um, this champion, this mysterious character that we knew about, and it gave us a sense of pride and belonging and leadership. So it started at a very young age where Nana, you know, of course you have to take responsibility, and this is what I say to people. Leadership isn't just, oh, I'm a counsellor, you know, I'm the chair of or anything else. It's about how you get up and face the day every day. And that's leadership and how you get out there and work with community and manage and navigate. You know, I can say that now very confidently. But then it was just like, you know, go feed the chickens and do this and do that (laughs) and this is your chores. But it developed a a sense of, I guess, um, you know, uh, discipline. Yeah, we were very disciplined as community. um, And, you know, it relates to all families. It's not just a black thing, a white thing. It's all families, yeah? So, um, yeah, that's that, I guess that's a long-winded answer, but no, it was no. very, very much off the cuff, but at the same time resonating at this time it's beautiful. while it's, I sit um, here in council. <laughs> it's quite beautiful. A lot of the people um, uh, on the show uh, go to their grand grandfather yeah. or grandmother a lot. Even Alex Greenwich went to his grandmother. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, it's quite um, it's quite uh, natural to go there because everyone has an impact on us. Thank you for that. Um, and there's so many. I mean, I could I could. There's so many kind of diverse little avenues I can go in that answer already. <laughs> so um, yeah. But but I'm conscious of uh, of of what we're going to talk about. So the second question um, before we start your interview um, is what's something about Imelda Davis that no one knows. Gee, I'm pretty transparent, though. That's <laughs> that's my problem. I wear my heart on my sleeve. Yeah. And I think that's, I think no one knows, I guess, the depth of struggle, yeah, through yeah. family, through advocacy, like the deep, the stuff that keeps me awake at night. No one knows the depth of that that struggle and that pain, I think, because I'm very closed off and when things start to happen, I tend to pull away so I don't communicate yeah. that well. I think I can do better in learning how to communicate a bit better. Wow. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm talking great here, right? Yeah. But at yeah. the same time, it's really I, the anxiety and the emotion tends to take over, yeah, and trying yeah. to find that. So it's like, and where does that come from? You know, like I'm still sort of grappling with all of that, like how to breathe through that. That's pretty it, honest. That's a, I think very... it restricts me a lot. So I think, and a lot of people say, oh, no, you don't look or you don't sound, you know, anxious, but it is. It's a deep-seated thing and I'm still figuring out. And, and I think it's also a result of um and this isn't victim mentality, it's just generational trauma, yeah. Yeah? yeah, that we live through and we witness, yeah? Yeah, yeah. Um, no, but no. how do you flip that, you know? Like that's my deepest thing, I think, that people don't really realise because they just see me as, oh, look, you know, well, that's, bouncy, that's bouncy, your... happy, happy, smiley, smiley. <laughs> yeah. Your first answer um, kind of hinted at the, the trauma 
and and the struggle. Do you want to? Um, I mean, I'm totally in your hands. Um, do you want to go there? Like one of the other people I interviewed on the show talked about this. What keeps you up at night? And he's actually yeah. made a made a career out of supporting people at your level, um, uh, at executive level, you know, so that they can support each other. Do you want? Do you want to share what might keep you up at night? Um, say in the last, even the last month. I think, you know, the the biggest thing for me is that a lot of my family aren't here to witness that I'm actually in this chair. Yeah. Um, a lot of my immediate family, because they've all passed away very early, including my brother yeah. in our lives and my mother and my father and X, Y, Z. Um, my passion is to reconnect with the stolen generations of the Pacific, and that's yeah. our Vanuatu families in particular, because that's my main ancestry, but also the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kinship that we have and bloodlines through this trade. So it's it's always a constant for me is how do I connect it in with city life, yeah? And people are like, well, I know it's not that's not the struggle, but it's about truth-telling for this city. Mm. So my time on council is about how do we bring that truth, that shared history, without it being detrimental to the relationships to the communities, yeah, that yeah, are yeah, going to have yeah. to embrace that, yeah? It's not well, a blame game. So how do we, you know, commemorate? And I think com commemorate, remember, and give that sense of belonging, like, you know, that stuff and council papers. Because <laughs> yeah. it's just about, because I come from a, a very different background where it's self-determination and I didn't have the privilege of going to, uh, yes, I went to university in my last, like I was 60 before I finished my first I saw that. Yeah, yeah. thesis, right? Yeah, so yeah. all of that stuff, it's like I come from a very different background and training and base. So how do I adjust to all of this on the it's on the fly, right? Like yeah. all this work is really like next one minute I'm out campaigning and the next minute here it is and there's a structure to everything and there's documentation and it's very challenging. But, you know, the city's got great support here and, and good people and I'm on a great team. Um, yes, we have our challenges, but at the same time, you know, we've, we've got each other's back um, in terms yeah. of, you know, how we advocate together. I think Lord Manza, she's an incredible leader and, you know, she comes with so much experience and she can just look at things and just, because I'll go in there with all my, you know, bells and whistles and then it, she'll just cut through some of that stuff. And that's, I'd like to get to that point where it's just really, you know, a clear vision and outcome for the opportunities that, wow. that are here for our community. I think um, I think anyone listening already, Imelda, it's quite uh, it's quite a common thing what you're talking about. Like you're almost talking about um, what some people term imposter syndrome. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah. So, but anyone listening to you, and, and I'm just like you and I've never met before in person like this. Um, yeah. I'm blown away by how eloquent you talk, how considered you talk. Um, <laughs> And and here you are thinking you're not up to the mark. So it's uh it's ah! uh it's um and I think anyone listening to you would think, well, what's she talking about? You know, it's uh yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, but it's um I think that humility 
and that uh, that level of self-assessment, self-regulation um, mm. keeps you on top of your game. So let, let's yeah, let let thank let, you. Let, yeah. I, I, I'm a considerate person because I want to be. I want to treat people the way I want to be treated, and I want to be treated the way people would treat their own families. So that's a very front of mind thing with me in how I engage with people. Yeah, it really is important to me, and anyone who knows me knows that. Yeah, it's not just a you know feel good statement. It's a lived experience. I think anyone already listening you wouldn't be where you are if you, if it was imposter if you were an imposter if, if if it was fake so yeah um, so true. Let's, but, let's, if, let's, but if uh, you but if yeah. you hurt me i can drop you if, <laughs> if that makes sense oh, it's all. like because it's bigger than us i think the struggle's bigger than us it's not and i don't i don't you know take stuff to my grave but i'm very you know i guess strategic in how i'll engage with certain things yeah yeah it's good Good. Yeah. So let's let's go there then. Um, I mean, we're we're in your hands. How mm-hmm. does this um, eloquent, considered, compassionate leader that um that we're talking to now? Where does oh, she God. come from? Where does she come from? How does, okay. where, where do you want to start the story? So I I come from the Northern Rivers, Tweed Heads, Chindra. In fact, uh, I was born in Brisbane, and my mother is a proud first generation born Australian South Sea Islander. Her father was stolen from Vanuatu. He was 12 years old. That's Moses Tupay Inez that I spoke about. And my great-great-grandmother was stolen from Umbai in Vanuatu. And my great-great-grandfather met my great-great-grandmother in Maryborough, where she was placed as a house girl on a plantation. And he was from a mission in Harvey Bay, and his family are the Santo families. And my great-great-grandmother, her families are the Tor or the Toa families. Now, in terms of identity, I identify as a proud Australian South Sea Islander woman who is also dual and tricultural heritage because we are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander descent when you trace our names, our bloodlines. And then my father came from the Caribbean in the late 50s and met my mum on the Gold Coast and married her. So um, that's my identity. It's blackness. It's very much, you know, um, who I am as a social justice advocate, but with a lot of empathy for human rights. So no matter what colour it is, um, you know, it's all important, you know, the stability of community and and families in particular. I'm a single mum of two amazing children um, that I'm very much a handful uh, for them to cope with, but you know it is what it is. You know they're my kids until I die, and I'm their mother until they, you know, until otherwise. So yeah, and and it's and again hard knocks, right? Like just trying to raise kids in social housing for the last you know 28 years. I've lived in Piemont, very fortunate, but navigating the system to really you know secure equal opportunity yeah just as a mother as a single mum with kids you know what i mean like forget the blackness but there's all that other stuff as well but then raising my children and finally them i guess finding their feet my son is the first australian south sea islander to go to oxford university through a division one scholarship 
that he acquired through athleticism, playing basketball, because we had no scholarships here for him. Um, and my daughter is an incredible young lady who's navigated a serious health condition uh, in terms of chronic eczema and asthma. And um, she's found her feet in doing uh, a BA in um, health science, but she comes from hospitality industry, always getting up. Just, you know, I guess she's a she's a testament to, you know, my family and, and the activism and the assertive nature, I guess, that we have because we're very matriarchal. A lot of our men passed away long before, you know, the kids were grown. So, yeah, I mean, that that's who I am. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, let's, yeah. Let's explore that. How, what's, uh, how old's your son? He's 34. 34. And where's he now? He's here. He's now working for um, an impact investment company. I'm incredibly proud of him. Um, going to Oxford, doing his BA in uh, impact investment, and he's the senior finance manager for DIA Capital, which puts infrastructure, another form of social justice. I see his outcomes because I'm like, come and join. You know, he's the treasurer of Australian South Sea Islanders, Port Jackson. Do this, do that. But he's now put his smarts into a degree that can actually bring about real economic, political wow. change for... Yeah. Yeah. developing countries in particular. So they're putting infrastructure and health and stuff. And he's 34 and he's the senior manager for this company down at Australia Square, which is, you know, a train ride away, four minutes. Yeah. But I can't yeah. even get lunch with him. You know? like, <laughs> That's funny. He's like, That's no, funny. my mum's not coming up in here. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. but uh, He's very um, much like that. It's and very... my daughter's studying, yeah. So yeah. she's... She's formidable and she's done so much work in, you know, just um, the Accor Hotel chain as an executive, um, uh, what do you call those people that are sort of booking and managing and all that hotel stuff. So a yeah. reservations manager um, and she's just been our backstop. Like she's she's the backbone of our family. She keeps us on track, yeah? Okay. How old is she? She's, she's, she's 32 and okay. she's really flourishing because she was delayed with a lot of stuff because of her the health condition was quite serious so it was quite heavy yeah. um where her whole body was and that, you know that's a lot of resilience in, in yeah, itself yeah, in terms yeah. of the pain and suffering and and um she's sort of come out of that at the age of 17 and these last few years she's really she's always been on track but just challenged you know so okay. Well, let's explore. I mean, you've 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 jumped from. I know. I, I was born in uh, Chindra, and then I've I've got two 30, 30 year old kids. Um, yeah. <laughs> just a, just a little bit of a jump. Um, <laughs> do you want to um, do you want to explore? You, you talked about uh, you came from adversity. Do you want to just explore? Like I, I'm sure a lot of listeners don't even understand what you talk about. I know, like, right? The the slave trade. A stolen generation from Vanuatu, and they mm. got they, they came to work on a plantation in yeah. Maryborough and Harvey yeah. Bay. Do you want to explain that, that part of Australian yeah. history, and that's your family? So yeah, and 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 part of the advocacy that I've done on the city of Sydney, as we are fastly approaching Australian South Sea Islander Recognition uh, Week, um, 
is a notice of motion. I put a resolution of council um, last year that recognised Australian South Sea Islanders, and now we fly the flag on the 25th of August, which is our annual national event. Well done. Blackbirding started with New South Wales in 1847. Benjamin Boyd, celebrated politician entrepreneur, bought the first 200 of our people from Lifu Island, New Caledonia and Vanuatu, Tana Island. And he brought them here to work on his whaling, fishing industries, but he was also um, enslaved, literally, uh, Maori and Torres Strait um, Aboriginal peoples. So the advocacy I do is about, uh, I guess, un- unveiling those untold truths bringing to the fore, and that is 1847, this trade started with New South Wales, Burnsville on Bridge Street managed those ships that mm. reaped Pacific nations of their, in some cases, entire male populations over a 40-year period. Robert Towns, Townsville, lived in Sydney. He never lived in Townsville, but he was an entrepreneur and celebrated and has a township named after him. Yeah. John Mackay, Mackay, Queensland, um, and also Gladstone and a number of others, right? Macquarie, all of those. Their money's their their wealth is built on Atlantic slavery. My thing is about uh, the truth telling of the sixty odd thousand men, particularly men, and five percent of the trade were women, and some children, such as my grandfather and many younger than him, were stolen from their islands when the trade was actually uh, officially started in eighteen sixty three for Queensland in establishing the economy in sugarcane, which saw us, you know, at one point the third largest sugar provider in the world mm-hmm. um, and still today providing sugar, but working on – it wasn't restricted to, to, to cotton um, fisheries, Bishlamar in the Torres Strait. Um, and then there was an influx in the 1860s in the Torres Strait Islands of 3,000 South Sea Islanders taken from these very same islands. So the islands that were affected, majority were from Vanuatu, Solomons, and mainly Tanner Island, then Solomon Islands, which is considered the sister city to Mackay because they have the largest Solomon Island population, Uh, New Caledonia, Kiribati, Tuvalu, Papua New Guinea, and um, what was the other one? Fiji, Rotuma. Okay. Yeah. Yeah? So what people don't understand is that this is 176 years since our people have been here. We were placed on the same missions, stations, so those Kanaka missions that they called them in terms of Christianity, colonisation, the 3,000 that came through the Torres Strait and settled there and are still there today. You'll find that majority of people in the Torres Strait are also not majority, but a lot are third and seventh generation descendants of Vanuatu, and they they know that. It sits within our communities, this knowledge. And then the influx of the, you know, 60,000 along the coastal areas, mainly of Queensland and inland and New South Wales, are also Aboriginal. So you've got 60% approximately. Torres Strait Islanders are South Sea Islander descent and 30 to 40% Aboriginal people are also 
South Sea Islander, um, Aboriginal descent, or all three. So very complex in unpacking this history. I've got a, you yeah, know, there's a yeah. few years ahead of me, but it's yeah. been 15 years since we've been lobbying and working with great people such as Alex Greenwich and the Lord Mayor. I actually walked into this office with my elders, Anishireen Malamu, my mother Nellie Inez, and also Uncle Graham Mooney, to see Deputy Lord Mayor Marcel Hoff in 2011, which is opposite to the office I sit in today. Yeah. And I was like a deer in headlights. Yeah. But these elders dragged me in and said, come on, we're going down here, we're going to sort this out, we want a South Sea organisation. And so I'm just sitting there and I remember Michael Chapman saying to me a couple of months ago, he said, you just sat there and you didn't know what day it was. And it was true. I was just like a deer in headlights. And then yeah. the last 15 years we've been advocating. And one thing I think and I like to pride myself on is that in terms of the networking and capability of, of I guess, community engagement, that's what we do as a not-for-profit organisation, Australian South Sea Islanders Port Jackson, is host events that are inclusive, like different colours, one people, and yeah, yeah. one salt water, meaning one salt water, one people, one mind, because salt water doesn't discriminate, right? But yeah. unpacking the truth of that history. And, you know, there were languages that came out of this trade that are spoken across the Pacific today and taught in... Um, the Vanuatu curriculum in particular called Bishlama and it was formed in it's a it's a talk pigeon or a or a um yeah broken English people call it or a Creole but that came out of Bundaberg Queensland and the advocacy work over the years is that in 1903 Mackay Queensland on the brink of the white Australia policy saw um, an organization formed by those Pacific Islanders to advocate for people to stay because there was a deportation that occurred for some 10,000 of our people under that white Australia policy. And these people advocated for, I think it was around about 3,000 to stay and they got to stay. Yeah. And then they, the next organisation was the Tweed Heads organisation, which was formed this can go on for days, by the way, mate. Yeah, so I don't no, know how far no, you want to go no, with it. But no, no. I want to um, probably look. The history is riveting, actually. Yeah. Um, so I, 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 I did not know um, this history. Yeah. As yeah. I'm as I as I'm researching to interview you, I'm starting. You know, I got a, an awareness of it, but only you can tell it the way you're telling it now. Yeah. So, um, do you want to take me there? Your first memory, where Imelda um started to be an activist in Childra, Chindra 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 um yep. and and how that how that kind of progression if you if you can try and think of it this way if I can steer you this way when we when you first became someone that was making a difference and 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 bringing people together and then the steps along the way that get you to where you walk into Clover Moore's office in 2011, or the yeah. deputy mayor's, the deputy yeah. mayor's, because yeah. it, okay. because it, because it's obvious. Like you, you were very modest at the start that you said I've I've never really done university till I was 60 mm -hmm. uh, with my with my thesis, but you're obviously educated. So um so uh, so ha where well, where year did, 12. Yeah okay. I yeah, barely so, made it. 
Yeah. I barely made it. And I am so, and I think it is because I've done along the way. So I've got 28 years in film and television, right? I saw that. Yes, yes, I saw that. I, yes. I was very fortunate to, um, in the in the 80s, in the early 80s, I, I went to Centrelink or whatever it was called then, and, um, you know, they said to me, oh, do you want to do editing? And I said, what's that? And they said, well, just go to ABC and, you know, let us know how you feel about it. So I went across and uh, it was the National Employment Strategy uh, for Aboriginal and Islander Peoples. And the rest is history. I ended up staying there for 10 years as a film editor assistant. And um, that progressed to working on, you know, Quantum and Four Corners and Weekend Magazine and all wow. of that sort of stuff. Yeah, it was really like, I didn't even know, like 16mm film, right? I don't know yeah. if you remember that. And you had yeah. the steam decks and I had to do track laying. I worked on Blue Murder, Four Corners, oh, yes. yeah. 7.30 Report. They ended up putting me into the newsroom doing syndication. And I've made a lot of great friends and still have them today through that work over 10 years at ABC as a formidable training ground. Um, working as an editor, that's where I met Stan Grant. I was his overseas editor for the early morning news and stuff like that. And then um, going let's, to SBS, et cetera. Let, right? Let's rewind you then because um, this, I mean, this is, we're getting into it now. So I, uh, I want to find out, like, I saw that and I, I didn't want to lead with it because um, it's a great story. So you just said you were born in 1961, I think. Yeah. So, so 1980, you're only 19 because you and I are pretty similar. I'm born in 62. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. So you look a lot younger than me. Don't tell me about that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Um, so let's just, I, I love the fact that you went, uh, what's editing and you went to the ABC and then yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and you've let, you started rattling off all these skills and the programs, like we all know Blue Murder, we all yeah. know Four Corners, we all know yeah. Quantum. So tell me, uh, share with us, you know, what, who kind of opened your okay. eyes to what was possible did you did, was there a mentor that showed you how to do this editing and how you know how do you end up being like with Stan Grant like he's he's a very eloquent yeah, uh, considered person with what what he talks about so how do you start and it's four corners there's so many pe people of a high level in that and quantum as well yeah just what sticks out in your mind that someone mentored you or you thought you you just jumped at the opportunity and you started to learn these skills was just kindness like people really encouraged me to stay in the space and my yeah. thing is and even I still do that today it's like wherever I am in the world or working I've always tried to provide a pathway for those that wouldn't necessarily have that opportunity because I know someone did that for me and that's my grounding in everything I do in in terms of grassroots work right it's not about, oh, well, okay, you don't have this qualification or you haven't gone to school. If people show up and want to do the work, they will achieve the outcome, right? I believe that. I know there's certain kinds of things that need, you know, um, training and education, but that comes. And a lot of the work that I've done is through ABC being such a formidable training ground where people work encouraged. It was an era where we were going into, you know, it was all that... Um, is there anything to celebrate in 88? I was actually the editor on, on, on that project that was broadcast, um, working with Cathy Craigie um, and another uh, a number of other Aboriginal um, film and television producers. But it was people in the industry 
that had a social justice conscious that gave us the opportunity and opened those doors for leadership, yeah? I mean, showing up was hard enough because if anyone knows news, it's not an easy task to manage. And it's 24-7, right? So you turn that TV on in the morning at 5 o'clock, there are people in the studio working and those people were, and, you know, it's the least I could do, right? So I'm showing up to do this newsreel stuff working on quantum, working on all these different programs, and people were providing opportunity and wanting to see, you know, I guess um, film and television progress for Aboriginal Torres Strait South Sea Islander people. And that was my leg up. And I ended up staying there for 10 plus years. Then I went to the Australian Film Television Radio School. Can, can no, we, I went to we, SBS. Can, hey? can, we, can we rewind? Just a, like there's got to be a story here. Um, yeah. In that 10 years that you're on all those shows, mm. you, you did you, you mentioned Stan Grant and yeah. a couple of other people. Yeah. Is there some thing that sticks out in those 10 years that you and you said someone gave you a go, someone um, yeah. uh, encouraged you to stay in the space mm. and created a pathway that you wouldn't? Can you can you remember a particular time where you went, wow, someone's created the pathway, and because of that pathway, I did this? Can you remember well, something like start, that? For a I remained an assistant editor. There's a difference, right? Mm-hmm. So I, re- I I remained an assistant editor, and I sort of well, I just I was just like I sort of just slotted into it. It wasn't even anything that I thought, wow, I like the music program, Rage, when it first came on and stuff like that, but it wasn't anything that I was like, it was a job, I had to do it, I was working, I had a child, you know, I just showed up. And and Stan was obviously, you know, Stan, Stan, right? So <laughs> he's just a down-to-earth grassroots guy. He's, he's always been that way no matter where I see him. It's not like... Or anything like that, and he was yeah. never. He was always very encouraging and and kind. So everybody seemed so kind and excited that this new wave of black practitioners were coming through, and there was opportunity and pathways opening up because also Karma um, Central Aboriginal Media Association was being formed simultaneously, and we got to travel to Alice Springs and and engage with other First Nations South Sea Islander. Torres Strait practitioners. So it was a buzz of a time, yeah? So, in fact, I was the first black editor in Australia. In 1983, I started at ABC Television, yeah? Okay, yeah. And then I went across to work on SBS after that 10-year period, but not without doing significant amount of work in the newsroom on different projects and also the 7.30 report. And I remember... You know what sticks out for me is when Trish Goddard was appointed the new presenter and it was just, I thought, wow, these mob, because there was a real pushback on race, like why is she worthy of this role? Mm. That was an era that we were in. Mm. So it was just like that was a wow moment for me because I thought, oh, hang on, I've been here all these years experiencing all this kindness and then when one of us are put on that pedestal like that, then it's like, hell no. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and then came Stan Grant. Yeah. And it was, you know, like things changed again. But um, that was a challenging 
time for me because I was grappling with where I sat in the larger picture because she was getting discriminated against. And that's a fact. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So how did you, um, I mean, a lot of us, I've heard the story sometimes, um, you think you're, you're on a particular ship and then when you look up and you, you actually got the pirate flag uh, yeah. flying and you, you realise you're on the wrong ship, um, yeah. how did you, like you seem quite progressive, you seem quite collaborative, um, mm. how did you deal with that? When I just Trish work got with the positive. I don't work with the negative. I step around it. Wow, okay, yeah. I just step around it. It doesn't matter what it is. You get on the horse, you keep going. And that's something that our people did historically. Yeah, it's about navigation. Can you give an example? This is this is this happens every day in a workplace. Yes. So this is this is really kind of true leadership. Can you give an example of maybe at that time where you stepped around something and worked with a positive when there was a negative thing going on, and how you led how you led that attitude. I think, well, okay, so so one of the challenges for Australian South Sea Islanders is that, you know, you've got community politics and there's a lot of backlash or blacklash, like, you know, community mob coming up against you. Who does she think she is? What do you think this is? Where did she come from? She's nothing but an African. Like all this kind of hurtful yeah. stuff that comes from community. And when it comes from your own mob, it's worse, right? So yeah. I dealt with that over a period of time where the government supported us with $50,000 to host a, a national conference and we produced seven out of that 50000 which is formidable because that was all about relationships in the different regions and it was national. So we went to different South Sea Islander communities, got Gilbert and Tobin on board, consulted a national constitution, and then everything just died. Okay. But that's progress. So we just stepped around it and we used that as leverage to build our profile. Okay. This is what we've done. This is the capabilities. This is what's there for the taking, for the, you know, no people use that constitution, but that's okay because it helped to inspire other people taking the positive to actually step up and do something because yeah. it's not just on one particular organisational person. Yeah, it's yeah. We all have to take responsibility. Yeah. It's it's it's, and that's what I say about Australia. And we've got a great initiative as a part of our Australian South Sea Islander recognition, where it's a white Australian woman hosting and has worked with us for the last five years in collaboration, and she's hosting workshops as a part of the City of Sydney Australian South Sea Islander recognition. And it's about it came out of the Black Lives Matter era for her, and she said, "I'm older. I'm a white Australian woman. I want to." I want to know the story. I want to take responsibility. I have, and I said, yes. I said, so tell our story, take that story. And she's created a artwork project with the skills that she has as an embroiderer. And now it's a, a fantastic initiative, which is on the website where people come and sit and talk. And she shares the Australian South Sea Islander story because she never knew about slavery and she's inspired and embarrassed at the same time, but she wants to do better. And that's what she's doing. And she's, we're good friends still today. And it's not about, oh, well, you're not black, you can't come in. It's like, this is our story. Let's do this. Like, you know, make it better for everyone. It's not that yeah, hard. Yeah. I'm so you glad. Um, 
I knew you had a story, but um, I'm, I, I love the simpleness of some of the things you're coming out with, um, like just uh, looking for the positives, step around things, something you said before. Um, I, I just love it because uh, it's, it's really kindness. Uh, yeah, it, it yeah, is kindness. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, that's, that's, that's just beautiful. And, <laughs> and, you, and, and kindness is, is critical, right? Like yeah, at yeah. this time, in this age, always... And that's how you want your family treated. So yes. who am I to impose or make you feel any less than yeah. when I don't feel like I belong in myself? Yeah. yeah? So yeah. how do I change that? I lead by example. Yeah. It's Beautiful. inclusivity. Yeah. Beautiful. And it's not so, about, you know, so you're not, you know, yeah. it's respect, right? I love it. I love it. I love it. Um, so we've, We've done the 10 years in the ABC. You said you went to the SBS, but you haven't really elaborated on what happened there. What what, what goes oh, on in the SBS? Look, I went to SBS and I worked with, um, I was recruited to, I worked on Eat Carpet or Red Carpet or some program that was there, and I was doing production management. Um, the shift work was a lot at ABC. It was pretty full on. It was 10 days straight you know, early mornings, late afternoons, nighttime, and I had my son and then I had my daughter. But then she was ill with this chronic eczema and stuff. Yep. So I lasted at SBS, but I worked on uh, for a short time, I think 12 months or more, And uh, but I worked for a short time on um, with Rachel Perkins on Blood Brothers as a production manager, she engaged me as. Mm -hmm. And then I went off and I managed my baby daddy's 12-piece Senegalese African band, which took Sydney by storm. Say that again? <laughs> I don't know. Do you really, I don't know if you like music, but African band music, and okay. the band was called Bubaka, and they were a 12-piece Senegalese West African, yeah, okay. group. And they were, he was a percussion master, and it was all percussion, and yeah. we used to do the Harborside Brasserie and national conference, national, um, you know, like um, what do you call that? Worm Adelaide and things like that. Eventually, we worked our way up to that. But I ended up managing that group for five years. That was nominated for an ARIA. Okay. Wow. And they took Sydney and Australia by storm. There's been nothing like it since. Formidable. So you managed it for five years. Yeah, fusion jazz music. Fusion jazz, so African fusion jazz music. It was something. I'll send you some links. Okay. Really, really good. Timeless. I don't know if you know people like Salificator and other Senegalese, um, uh, Alpha Blondie and people like that, very famous African artists, but this was Sydney's own. It was born here. It was raised here, but then it all sort of dissipated because of all the politics, usual, you know, <laughs> all the dramas. Yeah, and um, it was very unfortunate that they didn't continue, but it was it made its mark in this country. But it, un, again, unsung, unrecognised, you know. But um, so what, yeah, that was great, and I did that for five years. Let's um, explore that a little bit then, because um, if that's a, at a national, you, you, they obviously expand from a Sydney-based to a national-based yeah. entity. So you're the national manager for them. So Personal you, manager, because I was with with the lead singer, so you know. Okay, that's, all right, that's my yeah. daughter's father. Yeah. Okay. So talk about what skills did you bring to that? What skills did you bring, and what skills did you learn? Yeah. And how does that make 
build on who Imelda is. Mm, so again, the deer in headlights, right? Yeah. So the deer in headlights came after because of the political space. But in this whole, I think working for the 12 months as a project manager at SBS and then I guess the ability to work under pressure with ABC News and Current Affairs, yeah, uh -huh. and, and that editing deadline and all that kind of work, that resilience that you built yeah. in different but very different skill bases uh -huh. has sped into, and, and being an editor, remember, you've got to sit in a room and contemplate. You've got to think, and you're a lot of the time by yourself or editing assistant. Yeah, so you've got a lot of time by yourself and you've got to think through story and how to put things together. So I think that all fed into the project management of this group because I could, I mean, I think women are great lateral thinkers anyway, <laughs> regardless. Don't, don't no offence. No, 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 no I, I know you. Yeah? Uh, let me just make that admission, yes. Um, you yes. Think, you, think, you think in too many directions compared to what I can think of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you've got these, and as a single mum, and you've got all these tentacles, right, that yeah, are yeah. sort of grabbing simultaneously at different things and piecing everything together. So I think that was my strongest ability was to hold them together, to put it, because with editing you do a lot of shot listing you do a lot of you know administration in, in, in making sure that everything's legible and and um the communication is very clear so that your editor can sit down and say okay well i can read that and i can put this and that's over there and all of that so it's all of that kind of stuff that feeds into um i think project management and band management yeah, okay. and then you, you're you dealing with all sorts of personalities. So, you know, single mother, two, not single mother, we were together then, um, but, you know, two kids juggling 12 kids because the band was 12-piece band. And at one point they all lived with us, yeah, because, oh you know, okay. yeah. no one's got money. They're just, yeah. <laughs> so I'm washing, cleaning, cooking. And managing. <laughs> It was ridiculous and navigating again, yeah, just dealing with personalities. And, um, yeah, so, and then that led to, I guess, being asked to, then we sort of broke up and then um, being asked to work the, at the, band the Australian you, film. You, hey? you, the brand broke up or you and your partner broke up? Both. Okay. It just yeah. all, like, an explosion, a slow, yeah. yeah. And then, um, yeah. And then, um, the very editor, Bill Rosso of Blue Murder, who used to, and he was Four Corners editor, yeah. And mm -hmm. Alec Cullen and all of those guys, they're all, you know, retired now. But Bill Rosso was working at the Australian Film Television Radio School, and I went for the job as editing department coordinator, and he gave me the job. Okay. But at the, simultaneously, I was then managing my son's basketball team. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was getting in trouble for managing this, you know, African basketball team. Yeah. <laughs> at the same time, and in the end, he said, look, Imelda, I don't care how much basketball you do. As long as all the work's done, that's all that matters. And I said, great. So that's what <laughs> I did. Yeah. So and that's how that, my but... son got his career, through basketball. Yeah, no, I, I can see that. Yeah, so, and so, went to Oxford. So let's let's just... Let's just rewind a little bit. So you're with Bill Rosso. He gives you, 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 he selects you as the editing department coordinator for the ABC, is it? Yeah, no, for the Australian Film Television Radio School. Wow, okay. Uh, 
Yeah, so I was yeah. the department coordinator for five, I think five years. Wow. But so what so what's some of the what's some of the shows that you were responsible for during then? So what so the AFTRS is a school that actually trains and educates people in film and television production. Yep. So you have like a script writing department. I was the editing department coordinator. So I'd co coordinate all the coursework, working with the senior lecturer and the head lecturer for students that were coming in and doing, say, a BA in editing. Mm -hmm. Yeah? Okay. So it was basically working on student productions, just making sure lecturers got paid, the administration was facilitated throughout the organisation, and... Um, equipment and bookings, you know, that any of the students needed or if they had issues, they could come and sit and yarn and I'd read their angel cards and stuff like that because <laughs> I was doing a parapsychology course to sort my head out. Um, well, and, yeah, and then that's how I got <laughs> was, and that's how I got, I got access to the gear, right? I said to Bill, I said, now, <laughs> How can I access some of this film and television cameras, editing equipment, whatever they had in the special um, admin area? Because the students could come if they're learning cinematography, they could come and book a camera out, yeah, and things like that. So I said, oh, I want to try and shoot this program for the community. And yeah. this is what I'm talking about, people just showing up, right? So we started this initiative where we called it live in Sydney, because I love music. My father was a musician. He was a yeah. jazz musician. He came here in the late 50s. Mm -hmm. And I don't sing, but I just love music, right? Yeah. He was a he played double bass trumpet and sang. Mm -hmm. He had a show called Caribbean Carnival. But I started accessing this gear with another friend of mine from the Caribbean and he said let's start just you know these pubs have got great music let's just start shooting it let's just get some volunteers and that's what we did so yeah. people showed up I put out a thing on Facebook people showed up and I'm still working with these people today this is back in 2005 six the guy one guy still does our website anyway and um all of these people started showing up wanting to be on camera. So we set up a three-camera shoot, and I, it was legal that I could do it, so yeah. it wasn't abuse of anything. It was about yeah. outreach and pathways again, yeah, yeah? yeah. because yeah. people that want to get into the film and television industry, it's a very clicky industry, Yeah. but I'm here. So three of those people now are still working as budding cinematographers, and they're mm -hmm. working for TV stations and editors with NITV. So then I got a production up with all that footage on NITV. I pitched a reel and then um, they funded us to produce, I think I produced um, 28 episodes, 28 one-hour episodes of Roots Music. And so what's, um, what's, what's Roots Music? It, it, it was a program on national Indigenous television. I was an independent producer. Yeah. And um, my production company then, it, it transformed, right? So I was at Afters, did the show reel, then I was asked to go to Australian Film Television Radio School. So uh, Australian Film Tele uh, Commission, not Radio School. I was at the Radio School, Film and Television, and then I was headhunted to go and work at the Australian Film Commission, mm -hmm. wow. yeah, which was on William Street. 
okay. And it was Rachel Perkins' initiative, which was Message Sticks Indigenous Film Festival. Mm-hmm. They needed a coordinator. And because she knew of my work with, obviously, Blood Brothers, which I yeah. did briefly with her, but then Bubaka, the band, National yeah. Coordination, I became the black screen coordinator. So I okay. coordinated Message Sticks Film Festival. Did you know that? No, no, no. So Message Sticks Indigenous Film Festival uh, was produced by Rachel Perkins and Darren Dale, Blackfella Films, Sally Riley, um, people like that. Industry greats, yeah, mm-hmm. First Nations mob. And it was rolled out of um, uh, the Opera House, Sydney Opera House, every year annually. Yeah, okay. So it's First Nations films made by Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islander, writer, director, producer, camera, yeah, people yeah. working in the industry, building capacity. And I'd roll that out across Australia to all the independent cinemas and commercial cinemas if that happens. Well, your expertise, because you don't, you don't do that without some knowledge. Um, networks, relationships, and capabilities. So that's yeah. You're, you're just rattling off that. Oh, this was just I just did this, <laughs> but it, it, not everyone I, could do that. <laughs> I think being a Virgo is also, you know, like we just drill down on stuff. Yeah, yeah. And we're very, we're a bit manic, like, you know. Well done, well done. So do you want you actually gave us a bit of a hint there? Um, in between all this absolute hive of creativity and and creating pathways for First Nations people all over the country in, in the film industry. And white fellas, it wasn't yeah. just, yeah. Okay. Um, you were also the coach of your son's basketball team, uh, African <laughs> ba- basketball I'm, team. I wasn't the coach. I was the <laughs> treasurer. I was the, what was I? I was the manager. I was the mummy manager. And the thing is, they were, because it was an all-African, Sudanese, Asian yeah, marginalised communities, right? Yeah, yeah. Blackfellas, Aboriginal, Torres Strait, yeah. a basketball team, right? And mm-hmm. a lot of those people are still playing today and a lot of those young people are, did get scholarships. My son got a Division One scholarship, but providing pathways, again, to but, college yeah. ball, Division One yeah. schools in America. So just, um, I mean, you, you rattle this off so simply, but it's not simple. Um how long did that basketball team exist for and, and, and how does how do you create the the pathways for a division one scholarship in a in a college like Oxford, which is England, isn't it? Yeah. Oxford, yeah. So so how just talk us through that. How, how does the how does the, how does the team start and how does the how does it build? First of all, my son was 10 pound when he was born mm-hmm. so he looked like he was three months old yeah when he was born and then as he grew he was the biggest kid in the class so he went to Ultimo primary school you know Balmain High Blackwattle all that kind of stuff and there were uh, basketball coaches African-American guys who still exist today running programs um, Terence Roan in particular Fab Star Future Australian basketball stars it's a great initiative and it's been going for 20 plus years mm-hmm. they approached me because they go around to the schools and they had this concept about coaching young kids to international basketball standard right 
So they went around to schools and they identified Shola and they asked me, you know, can he play? Can he come and train? And Shola was just so unco mm. and he wasn't interested in any of that, but he was this kid on steroids. He was just yeah. like driving me crazy. And I thought, <laughs> a single mother, I thought, yep, this will whip him into shape. And, you know, having a black role model, someone to discipline him mm. and give him that, you know, what he needs. So we started getting involved with the basketball and I thought, well, I'm not going to leave him here to go through all of this by himself, so I may as well get involved. So myself and my daughter, she was only tiny, tiny, um, got involved and we started training in the American standard of training and that was 4.30 a.m. starts for the next five years. And... I thought, well, if I'm going to lay here, I may as well start doing something in the yeah. car. So yeah. I just started assisting with managing and bringing, because I, and then I went and got a Kia bus. So then I used to pick up all the kids on the block and take them to this training at Burwood yeah. every morning at 4.30. And oh, then yeah. all these kids would do basketball, but it was really rigorous, like, yeah. If, I don't know if you've seen American basketball training. It's like on the weekends we'd run, or not we, they would <laughs> run, <laughs> sand dunes down at Cronulla. Yeah, right? yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I've done that. Yeah, yeah. all yeah. that kind of, um, what do you call that, like that army training? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we did that for many years. And my daughter, bless her, she would make his lunch and make sure that his clothes were ready every, like I'd have to leave her home. I had to. It wasn't neglected just because she was just, you know, she couldn't do this. Mm -hmm. So by the time we get home at 8.30 after 4.30 start, his lunch and everything was ready and he'd go to school. But then he was offered a scholarship at Newington, so he went there, not even a scholarship because the jackets are $300. Mm -hmm. um, and then he got picked up by some basketball coach come over, scout, and then he got picked up by a family in Arizona who wanted to... He went to Asheville Boys High. Then he got picked up in Arizona and um, they wanted to adopt him, but he was, you know, this is when he was about 17 now. Yeah. We've done five years of it, right? Yeah. Um, and then um, people just looked after him because he was too old to be, what do you call it, uh, like a guardian, like someone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that he'd get all the rights of whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so they just assisted a lot of good people along the way. American white families supported him and he lived with them. Very wealthy people, mm. but he was very humble. They just loved him to bits and just nurtured his career to Division One scholarship at Winthrop University in South Carolina. And then after that, he came back to Australia. He worked here for, um, he would never tell you this story, but he worked here for Ernst in Young and Wilson's and another international company. Then he got up one day and he came home. He said, Mum, I've got to go. I said, where are you going? He said, I'm going to London. He said, I booked my ticket. I have to. So he went and he ended up working for Morgan Stanley because mm -hmm. he got a job the day after he landed. Yeah. Did his BA and then came back because of COVID and then they offered him a, scholar, um, not a scholarship, a placement at, Oxford University, where he attended the Sayad Business School and did his MBA on impact investment. Wow, what a story. Business. Oh, he's just deadly. He's amazing. I wish he could talk like I talk. He's just, he's very, you think, he's very humble. He's incredibly 
humbled. You're a very proud mum too. Yeah, I am. <laughs> I, I was the, I was the one on the sideline uh, yeah, with yeah. the pom poms and the boom box, and the coaches would have to say, "You're scaring the children, madam. Can you get <laughs> off the court?" I like um, it's such a a good example. Like the, that that journey wouldn't have been easy. Um, no, it wasn't. Uh, uh, but but then. You made the decision that you were going to go get up at four thirty a.m. You bought the Kia bus. Oh. Uh, so there's a lot of hardships in that. Yeah, um, and and you know the one thing that I'll never forget is that because it was hard, it was really hard, and and the car we lost the car mm. um, because it just died because it was just secondhand and just not happening, mm. and we'd lost the car, and I remember I was thinking to myself, how are we going to do this, and then. One morning I heard the door shut and I looked out the window and it was my son walking up the street at 4.30 in the morning to go to train. Yeah, well, I'd just walk there to get there. How far did he have to go? Oh, he went to Burwood, so. But still, for him, as a, you know, yeah. sorry, it was just an emotional vision. No, 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 no. I I think what all the listeners and me personally, Imelda, you're sharing a lot of, life really uh and and we none of us can imagine some of the challenges um that you would have but had we all have challenges yeah anyway. yeah, yeah but but we all family's family yeah um, and and it's a beautiful story in the end but um i'm sure so how did how long were you without a car and how did how did how did the kids get to the oh, training wow, but one of my dearest friends came jackie her name is from london she said i've got this car she said, you can have it because I know how hard you work. Okay. She gave me this old car, but, yeah. you know, and she just gave because she knew I hadn't had it for a, a few months and she knew the training and stuff we had to yeah. go through. So she gave me her car. Wow. It's and another example of uh, I, I'm, I, I'm sorry that this has upset you, so we will move oh, no, on. It's, it's, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, but, but I really thank you for sharing. It's proud uh, tears. Yeah, <laughs> yes, yeah. Um, I like, it's a really personal example of what you talked about earlier, how you um, look for the positivity and you step around challenges Yeah. And, ke and keep going. So, and it's a great story. Like some of those companies that your sons work for, they're, you know, they're, they're world leaders in everything they do. So they are, pretty, aren't they? Yeah, pretty amazing, pretty amazing I didn't story. even know who they were. No, at the time, no, no, mm. you do you do now. So, um, so we've dealt with you did all the the Australian Film School stuff and the Australian uh, uh, Broadcasting Commission. I think or the Australian Film Commission. So where do we go to then? Yeah, how, how do we? How do we? There still must be a story. Yeah. So um, I I did produce for NITV for a number of years. Uh -huh. As an independent producer, and I produced uh, obviously the Roots music that I spoke about, where it was derived through the film school access to equipment uh -huh. to sort of shoot pilot reels and things like that. And that turned into a full blown production, which was great. And uh -huh. I did that for a number of years, three or four years. And simultaneously, I got into producing the National Indigenous Basketball Tournament. So uh -huh. I worked with Anaira. So what happened was Redfern Records, which is Stephen Ridgway and his sister Nikita, 
they said, oh, sis, you know, your your son's in basketball and you get it and you can produce TV. So I ended up doing OB broadcasts, right, like proper basketball yeah. where, you know, how you watch football games and stuff and they got yeah. the outside broadcast vans that come in. Yeah. So I ended up producing that. Okay, and it was, well. and it was, I did three years of national Indigenous basketball. Wow. And just recruited, you know, uh, First Nations practitioners, black practitioners from the uh, basketball industry to participate as a part of it. And it was 42 teams wow. that would fly in for these annual. So we did Darwin, we did Adelaide, we did Melbourne. Yeah. And each, each uh, production was something like, I don't know, 15 or more episodes, one-hour episodes. It was pretty good. But you got a team of people, right? You're only yeah. as good as the people you surround yourself with and those that get it, yeah? Yeah, okay. Um, but that, even that's, I mean, you, you're still um, you're still glossing over the details that that must take. So so you're obviously leading that. Tell me, tell, give us, share with the, um, uh, me during the interview and, and our listeners, um What's your philosophy in leading a creative group of people like that in a project like the um, the First Nations basketball, Indigenous basketball, um, over fifteen episodes? Well, we worked with we worked with people. It's about listening and and really being able to sit down and and work with whatever vision is put on the table, and making sure you re respect that process, especially working in the Aboriginal, Torres Strait, First Nations, Australian, South Sea Islander space. It's very much about, you know, empowering voices. And and because I come from a forgotten people, yeah, mm -hmm. so you just sort of put it back on yourself in, in, you know, how do you want to progress this? You know, how would you feel, yeah, and what works for you in terms of those relationships and it's very it's it's hard to navigate the personalities, but I think also you've got to try and set aside some of that stuff too, and not take it too personally. And that's what I did with also the one talk, like the national conference stuff. It's like, well, I don't have to live with you, mm. yeah. So you go home, I go home, we get up and get on with it, type thing. But it's hard. Sometimes it's hard to swallow that pill too. It's not like it's been easy. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's, you know, I guess, you know, politics is is, is a bad thing. It's, <laughs> it's not easy. Yeah. Do you want to give a, without probably naming a name, mm. do, you, do you want to give an example of how you got, how you got, like, got through a difficult situation, a relationship? but you ended up with a positive outcome in the end because you navigated yeah. it. Yeah, well, it is my relationship with, with my daughter's father and 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 I ended up, because I was so chaotic in my head, I went and did, I did mention um, a um, parapsychology course mm -hmm. and that's all about spirituality, meditation, colour therapy, um, you know, nature spirits, which I couldn't quite get into. Yeah. Um, NLP, neuro linguistic yeah. programming, and it was a two-year diploma. 
And that helped me think through about how do you release? And it's still ongoing therapy in terms of my daughter, my son and I still do counselling. Yeah. yeah, because there's yep. deep seated issues and my daughter wants, she says, mum, I want to change the narrative. So we still are all committed, good and bad, uh, feelings about it all, but to facing those demons of truth and being able to take that, um, that constructive feedback, I guess, and having someone to facilitate that. So getting through, you know, wanting to have the white picket fence and the wonderful family, which wasn't a reality. Mm. Yeah, it's not going to happen, not on, <laughs> yeah. you know, not now, not ever. But uh, And it could very well. I don't, uh, you know, I don't um, think it won't. But it, at the same time, it's like there's so much more to do as well. But mm. um, I think, you know, your mental health is key to any kind of, success in life it's we've got to do the work right we've got to try and look wow. within you're it's, um but my kids are teaching me that too it's not you know i don't sit here you know uh not criticize it took a long time to get here <laughs> yeah no i love it i love it um you this interview is probably one of uh, it's just i love where it's i love how honest you are um I love how you accept the guidance of everyone around you, and you obviously guide people around you as well. So it's um, it's a I think this will be a hugely hugely uh, popular interview. So um, so we we're we're doing the indigenous basketball. So where where do we end up? Like we still haven't got to you um becoming the counselor. Uh, oh. uh, so how what so how do we get there? So, and, and then it's like, so doing that, doing yeah. the basketball, and then all of these skills still in the back of my mind is Australian South Sea Islander recognition. Yep. So what can I do, you know, with this journey? Every Everything else is sort of progressing. So what do we need to do? And that's when we started having meetings in 2009, not long after I was producing um, for NITV, and uh, the elders said to me, we need this organisation to happen. Mm -hmm. And then Auntie Shireen Malamu, who's now 87 years old, was sitting on the First Nations Advisory to the City of Sydney. Mm -hmm. So she started talking to me Um she was good friends with with Lord Mayor Clovermore, or yeah. is, yeah. Um, and obviously networking with all the different um, councils, but in particular the Deputy Lord Mayor, and that's when they dragged me in here and said, okay, we want to set this organisation up, help us. So the City of Sydney were instrumental when Larry Galbraith, Michael Chapman, Deputy Lord Mayor Marcel Hoff, um, accommodated a meeting that I put together at, after coming here at, at the Piemont Community Centre, and that was in 2010. And then we sat down and they gave us the advice. <laughs> and Michael, I'm still friends with Michael and, of course, Larry, um, and, and basically Michael said, this is what you need to do, da -da -da -da, gave us all the right pathways, and, you know, you can lead a horse to water. So, you know, we drank it, and that's yeah. how we formed 
the organisation, which then um, in 20, I think it was 2012 when Alex was yes, elected. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yep, yep. And I thought, oh, he's our member for Sydney. So I just went and had a meeting with him one day. Yeah. And he was shocked that he didn't know anything about this history. He was embarrassed yeah, because yeah. he was a well-educated young yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. And I think it just, you know, inspired him to assist us. And then 2013, we got recognition in New South Wales Parliament, bipartisan support for Australian yeah. South Sea Islanders, and all ministers were briefed. So I did a briefing document that went to all ministers, so no one had to worry about how to talk, what to do. Linda Burney spoke in favour, um, Jamie Parker spoke strongly and every other, and then, um, you know, of course, Alex Greenwich, and he's been our champion ever since, mm. you know, and he's just been a formidable force. So I guess, and then simultaneously there was natural disasters with Vanuatu, Fiji, and, um, you know, with Australian South Sea Islanders, we were recognised in 1994 as a distinct cultural group by the Commonwealth, mm -hmm. yeah, who value our islands of origin and our heritage and identity and yearn the reconnection with our Vanuatu nations or our islands that we were stolen from. So with the devastation of Cyclone Pam, it really ignited something in the community and, and we all sort of rallied to support and in Sydney, Australian South Sea Islands, Port Jackson. Again, I worked with a lot of networks, SES, National Disaster Management Resources, um, the Vanuatu government. We've got a relationship with, and we procured six containers, forty-foot high cube containers to donate to Vanuatu, and then the Rainbow Warrior come on board through the three fifty degrees climate change warriors. And we all work together um, to distribute those containers in Vanuatu. So in doing that, I went and did that, came back. I worked with the women on the ground in Vanuatu. It was incredible. And the um, Vanuatu government office, we raised $10,000, um, which helped to distribute. And it was very physical because yeah, it's a developing yeah. country. So this, So here I am at the wharf and, you know, Unpacking these containers like I've, you know, like no forklifts or anything. So all these women just mobilised, 150 of them, in fact, and started pulling all the goods out and distributing on a rusty old cargo ship to all the different provinces, which was fantastic. And then Rainbow Warrior arrived, um, who initially wanted me to go on their ship from Sydney to Vanuatu, and I said, no, I've got no time for all that. Um, but either way, they arrived and assisted with that distribution as well. Coming back and then Fiji was hit, and that was Cyclone Winston. But then already having those networks, I ended up being able to procure 13 containers, yeah. ACPJ, 40-foot high-cube containers, and even donations of push bikes and everything from, like, it had to be, like, a container of, 20,000 blankets, yeah? It wasn't just, oh, well, everyone just throw your leftovers here. It was specific disaster resources that we sent to these countries. <laughs> so that was great. But in the midst of doing that, then Alex recommends me for the New South Wales Local Woman of the Year or something. Wow. Yeah, so he, he's, again, championing 
you know, the work of SEPJ because it's not without the board and, and the endorsement, you know, of, of the local communities. So that was a real privilege. And then... Let, um, let, let me just rewind a little bit, sir, because, again, it's just like you're... This is what I love about uh, how a leader gets built um, kind of thing. So your all your your logistical um, relationship um, abilities in the in the film industry that you did for 27 years because mm. what you anyone listening to you just talk about uh, well I just got uh, 13 containers and you nominated what they were the 40 cubic whatever they were 40,000 cubic stuff and yeah. six containers and how, how, how that all works that's that takes a, it's a logi- lot right that, yeah, that's a, that's a list that takes a logistical giant to even talk about it but uh, but you did it so how how does um where does that come from? Like you, it's, it's relationships with people. You show up. You, show, you do the work. That's your favourite saying. I love it. It's so true. You show up. More recently, I spoke in Vanuatu for the House Blong Dorian for the um, MacFest seventh anniversary. But in you know, in in sharing with young people about leadership, it's it's eighty percent of the time. It's about showing up getting up, showing up, and doing the work. The rest will come. I said, don't think of monetary gain because that's that energetic, this I learned this in my parapsychology course, yeah, energetic yeah. vampire thinking, yeah? Yeah, yeah? Don't 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 hang on to necessarily what the reward is, but just do it because of your intention, that integrity behind why you're doing it. And then the it's it's like the um what do you say what's that um the law of attraction mm. yeah we are yeah. energy what you put out is what you get back yeah does that make sense like, no no totally totally I I love um I love how simple you're making what what is not simple of what you've done yeah, <laughs> but it's but the energy yeah yeah it is energy we're all yeah. energy yeah yeah I love that um, in the course too. One of the other people I interviewed on the show um, talked about um, you just got to have good people yeah. and let it, and let them loose. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of the time, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so mm-hmm. so where do we end up? Like when a, we've done, Alex Greenwich nominates you for the um, New South Wales Woman of the Year award. Mm-hmm. Uh, Local mm-hmm. Woman of the Year Award. So, what year is that? Oh God! I think actually it was after we got the Pacific Communities Award because they recognised us. Um, gee, twenty? I don't know. Twenty thirteen? No. Just let me have a look. It might have been twenty fifteen or something. Okay. But not before. Not before the. Um, bless the. The Ultimo Public School Hall of Fame. Okay. <laughs> which was lovely, mm. which I love more than anything. And they recognized my son because he went to Ultimo Public School. Yeah. But um, New South Wales Council for Pacific Communities recognized us, you know, in terms of community building because this work is not done without the organization, right? Yeah. Um, uh, 2015 community building because we hosted a couple of workshops in Vanuatu and Solomon's called Find Them Back Family, trying to 
just connect with community and finding family. Because when you go to the Pacific nations, Vanuatu in particular and the Solomons, a lot of people are looking for family that were taken yeah. as a part of the blackbirding. And this is what I just said to the uh, Australian High Commission to Vanuatu. We need to find our families. This is too long, lingering. Yeah. Yeah. yeah? And we've got seasonal work. I'm going down another road here, but the seasonal work advocacy work we do, um, it's very much about that. It, it's It's got great potential, the Pacific Labor Mobility Scheme, to reconnect us because they're bringing the exact same people from the exact same islands because of the resilience and ability to do this work. Yeah. It's yeah. historically, yeah. Yeah, so that's, that's the, the age. Is you, you're talking huh? about the age. That's the uh, Labor government's Albany, the aged care workers. Is what you're talking about? All there? of that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Lovely. Lovely. Aged care, seasonal work. We don't eat in Sydney or any of those other cities or regions if Pacific and Timor Leste people aren't picking the produce that's on our shelves in those supermarkets. Yeah. And that's a fact. Yeah. Okay. It's, I'm um, actually putting forward a notice of motion this week to take to New South Wales government to support councils to develop outreach programs to assist our people that are being sent to these regions, thousands at a time, 500 it, minimum going to as, townships. Okay. In anyway. Orchards and everything. Is that what you mean? Hey. You mean yeah, orchards and fruit, you know, grapes, yeah, strawberries. Yeah, which is very low paid work. Lettuce, yeah, potatoes, yeah, yeah, you name yeah, it. Yeah. Pacific nations do it. You're pretty special, Mamilda. Um, <laughs> what, uh, so how do we get, how do we, when do you get elected to your councillor position? Um, what was that, 2021, was it? Yeah. Wow, okay. But, but Alex recommended, um, he just rang me one day and said, oh, you know, what do you think? And I said, well, as long as it doesn't take away from my advocacy work for Australian South Sea Islanders and all that other human rights stuff that I'm doing. Mm. He said, oh, no, no, it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, what a, what a shock. But anyway, but, yeah, I'm here now. So thanks to him and Lord Mayor who, you know, I've marched alongside Lord Mayor for climate change stuff, you know, the massive climate change. Like, she knows, and only Shereen Malamu, who sat on this this advisory, she used to just say, come on, we're going to town hall, get dressed. Mm. And so I'd come in with her and she'd say, this is Imelda Davis, and she'd just sit there. I was just like, oh, my God, this is too much. And this yeah. is long before I got on council. Mm -hmm. But... Um, Aunty Shireen has, has been one of the biggest advocates, uh, other than my mother and Uncle Graham, but just to put me in front of politically savvy opportunities, you know, yeah. and the rest is history. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, I am privileged to sit here because it's been a long road and uh, people don't have to accept you. Yeah? But you've obviously, um, you've obviously... I can see it how people have you. You have relationships. You 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 people people treat people with kindness. You treat people with um, respect and understand mm. their understand their position. Um, but you are at the same time you have us you have an advocacy and a and a and a, a value system that yeah. kind of rela relates across everything. So it's pretty it's pretty amazing. One of the things I wanted to ask um, you just talked about your friend. Um, 
Cherie... Uh, Ani Shireen Malamu. Yeah, so she was the First Nations advisory to the City of Sydney Council. She was on that advisory panel. She's an Aboriginal Kanak woman. So she's Aboriginal descent, but she's also a descendant of Australia's blackbirding trade. I saw her on your on your LinkedIn. There's a, there's an article about her in, in a plantation somewhere. Um, yeah, you're Plantation Creek. Yeah, yes. Um, would it be fair? Would it be fair to say that 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 advisory body is a is a city city of Sydney example of what the the voice is all about? Absolutely, um, because and I was just talking about this with the CEO this morning. Even with Vanuatu. They have a council of chiefs that represent their provinces to government. Mm. And that's how, you know, it, it, of course it's, you know, it's colonial Westminster and then cultural governance, but they find the balance. Mm. And the same with the advisory panel. It's finding the balance and listening to those voices that has worked for the city in advancing Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander affairs, you know, and and I'm privileged to sit on that panel as the Lord Mayor Rep um, and bring that other side of our community, which is the Australian South Sea Islander demographic, yep. like I said, absorbed under the same Aboriginal Protection Acts, married in over the years for the last 176 years. Yeah. So it's an untold narrative that sits within that community as well you know what i mean so people know me for for that advocacy work so um where possible it's not to take away from but it's about greater inclusion and yes. social justice yeah because we're know, not I included yeah, i love um anyone listening to you today like the energy the diversity of all your experiences your um trauma from uh, from from your history but your compassion to be inclusive i think is an example to all of us so uh, and i love what that diversity has enriched your story as a leader uh, like you like when i that's what this show is about how, how does and you've taken us there in the last hour and a half um how do you become the councillor uh for the city of sydney where you're the deputy deputy person representing Clover Moore um, all over the place. And I think you've articulated that wonderfully well. Like your your life's had adversity, your life's had joy, you've taken the opportunities, you've learnt the kindness. Um, and I just love, I love the whole story. Um, well, we're almost there. There's something I, I, I noticed on your LinkedIn profile that I'm just a little bit curious to ask you. That profile is so not updated. But okay. <laughs> yeah, but there's something there that um, uh, you went you went to New York City mm -hmm. uh, for a cultural committee yep. or something. Did yep. you meet Did you Did you meet the mayor uh, Eric Adams over there for that? No. no okay. No. Uh, Why? Oh, he's just to me. He's him and Clover uh, mirror. Oh, okay. Of each other, what they what they do. Yeah. Oh, so, okay. so, so I just wondered whether you'd met him. Um, okay. So I want to, I'll, I want to finish the interview with your advice about leadership, but you just, something you touched on in this conversation just then in the last probably 10 minutes was climate change. You're a, you're a huge mm -hmm. um, advocate for that. So do you want to talk about that just a little bit? 
and then we'll go we'll go into the final part of the interview. Okay. Um, one of the challenges um, for me, and that's what I've shared with the city, is that we need to start centering the Indigenous voices as a part of this advocacy work around climate justice, mm-hmm. and especially the Pacific Nations, Torres Strait, because they're facing, you know, the um, adversity right now. And I think it's important for people to actually grasp and understand the impacts firsthand rather than, you know, those powerful entities that are well-established talking about climate action. Um, and with the, uh, the Vanuatu government in particular heading up the International Court of Justice decision and climate change champion for loss and damages, the, the Honourable Ralph Regan Vanu, I think this is, and the, the current bid that New South Wales potentially or Sydney is doing for COP, is it 26 or COP? COP 26, that's what it's called. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I just think it's, a, it's an opportune time to demonstrate the inclusion that's necessary with First Nations voices and showcasing those leaders in the space that have been leading, you know, for for centuries, since millennia, you know, in maintaining country. And and it's a new era where we need to start marrying, marrying, you know, when you marry stuff together to to get the outcomes that you need and have that presence, yeah? Yeah. At, At the fore, because no one sustains a country more effectively than the vision of its First Nations peoples, yeah, the practices, Mm -hmm. the mindsets, the food resilience, going to Vanuatu and looking at how the Tanner Island people um, demonstrated resilient food maintenance in the face of adversity and how they turned you know, banana leaves and the coconut into no, obviously no refrigeration, but they demonstrated just how that could happen. Because at some point, we're all going to have to revert back to very basic, you know, practices, I'm Mm. sure, if we don't get on top of this climate change. Yeah. Yeah. My daughter's got a greenhouse right now and learning how to grow vegetables. But the resistance, resilience work in that space is just about, you know, aid, and, and first responding, you know, showing our nations that we're still thinking of them Good. and we're here for you. And even now as we speak, through my daughter's connection with Sofitel Darling Harbour, mm-hmm. we've just sent a million dollars worth of Sofitel linen. They actually, you know, pre-loved clean linen to Vanuatu, which they're unpacking as we speak. Um, another container. It's only a 20-foot cube container, but it landed when I was there just recently. Um, But now this lady's ringing me because they're trying to deconsolidate that container on the wharf. But, yeah, I said, go talk to the Australian High Commission. They might be able to help you. But anyway, you're just a a logistical nightmare. (laughs) No, no, no. I'm... I'm trying to think of a logistical matriarch is probably the kind of like oh. you, 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 you're, you're, um, I like in my, in my world in, in the cops. So I had this wonderful lady that was uh, my logistical kind of commander. Um, right. 
but yeah, I think you put anyone to shame. You're so kind. I really appreciate it. It's huge stuff that most of us don't know how to do, what you're doing. So let's um, let's wind it up. I, I think I, I could talk to you all day, actually. Uh, but, um, uh, let's wind it up. It, the question I ask someone such as you, um, like you're showing everyone, you know, uh, in in that listens to this interview, how to be a leader. Um, so if you were going to advise someone else starting out as 20-year-old Imelda mm. or even even 60-year-old Imelda now, um, mm. what would you be your key one point or three points on leadership? Okay. Um, is to sit with your elders. Don't take it for granted. You've got this whole new generation of people who think of course and I was the same at 20 is is sort of you know thinking they've got the solution for everything but the wisdom the knowledge the resilience the determination it comes from those that have gone before you or those that have led the way for you and you need to learn from that you need to share that it's not about reaching a certain age and then okay we're just disposable yeah yeah because that depth of knowledge you you can't replace that because you end up reinventing the wheel we want to work smarter not harder yeah and that's yeah. that's what i found with elders i can continue this work for australian south sea elders port jackson and sit on council as a as a cultural advisor because of my elders that have given me that wisdom and that strength and that reassurance yeah, Beautiful. to lead. And that's Beautiful. what they did. It's yeah. not even an exaggeration. It's it's and I remember my grandmother, I remember my aunties that all fought for this struggle for us to sit here today. And it's it's very it's evident. So don't underestimate or think people are too old to just sit and get to know them. Because that's where the knowledge and the success comes from. Beautiful. You know? Because yeah, those people I... that provided pathways were all older than me. Yeah, yeah, the, and um, I took that lesson. Oh, I got you're the thirtieth, probably thirty thirty first person I've interviewed. Oh, okay. I've uh, uh, it's been going over a year now. Um, this this program, I've, and I've never heard that answer. Thank you. It's true. Yeah, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Trust yeah, trust that. Yeah, now I do. I, I totally. Um, uh, that's a beautiful answer. So thank you for making that number one. Is there, is there, is there, is that it, or is there you got um, a couple, two and three, or or is that that your takeaway? Um, and I think you know, family's key to your foundation, and you find family in different ways. You don't have to have a thousand and one kids, or you know, it's it's your circle. It's who you surround yourself with. Yeah. It's 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 those that are there for you and you're there for them. So that's family, as far as I'm concerned, because we're coming from displaced families, mm. and we find family in community. Yeah, so that's a that's a key to success as well. Is that you know there's been so many people, black and white, that have spent like decades working with us, mm. white people. Yeah, and people are like, oh, you know, but no. Self-determination is exactly that, building relationships and working together. Beautiful. It shouldn't have to discriminate to the levels that it does in a lot of cases, yeah? yeah. 
But Wonderful. people have to respect each other's boundaries. That's all. Yeah. 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 And cultural protocols. And and uh, you know, one funny thing, Annie Shireen says to me, you know, because I've got a friend who's she's white, South African, and she says, look, you need to find your people. You need to understand who you are in order to have that belonging. Yeah. Yeah. It's not necessarily in her people, but it's about taking the lesson of of the struggle and applying it to, you know, some of the challenges you've got in your life, right? Beautiful. In finding your sense of belonging. That's that's um that's one of the like here at that psychological level that you you explored. One of the one one of the things um they say is human crave human beings crave three things: they want to belong. Yeah. That they, they they want to um. They want to have autonomy over their over their life, and they mm. want to have mastery over what they learn. So, yeah. your, your your family story um, about your daughter and your son yeah. kind of sh- shows that. But I- I'll wind it up here. Thank you. Um, you have shown all of us what's possible, and I can't uh-huh. I, I can't believe um, where you've taken us. And I I, I I could still interview you for another two hours, but. Um, Thank you for sharing what you've shared. It's been probably one of the most enjoyable interviews I've done for a, on the show, actually, because Alex Greenwich is probably uh, he, he's probably probably one of my favourites. But I, I can see why he's he loves my you. Favorite. Yeah, I yeah. can see why he loves you so much. So yeah, yeah thank you. Okay, thank you, Alan. Yeah. Oh, I really <laughs> appreciate it. Well, how good was that interview? Imelda shared with us some of the most down-to-earth leadership wisdoms I think I've ever heard. And I'll share some of them with you. Work with the positive and step around the negative. It's about listening, working with your agreed vision, and respect the process and empower the voices of others. We don't have to like each other. You go home and I go home to separate houses, but we do have to get on with it. Thanks, Imelda, for one of the best interviews on the program so far. Until next time, listeners, thanks for listening.